Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 22nd, we are studying Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Jesus takes his inner circle of disciples up a high mountain, and there he is transfigured before them. What does this amazing event teach us about our Lord and his work for our salvation? We'll explore that question and more today. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Phil Hoppy. Pastor Hoppy serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, definitely glad to be back with you today to look at more of God's word uh, and think about what it uh, means for our faith in life. So we are in Mark chapter 9 today, the transfiguration of our Lord. I think a relatively familiar text to us. What kind of context do we need to know going into this, Pastor Oppie? Well, yeah, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago, probably for most of us, that we did uh, celebrate the transfiguration of our Lord in worship. And so we may even have some thoughts uh, going in our mind from sermons we heard or just from hearing the text uh, that day. I guess one thing I would draw our attention to to begin is just uh, that, you know, we're starting in verse two, um, and uh, but we might want to look back at verse one just really quickly where Jesus is uh, speaking to those before him and he says this thing that, you know, some standing here will not taste death uh, until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Uh, and as you have covered uh, on this show, uh, you know, there's several things that might <laughs> refer to, uh, but certainly one of the leading candidates is that it actually is speaking about the transfiguration configuration itself. Uh, and so we remember that, you know, as we get into this, that this certainly is one way, at least, in which we see the kingdom of God present with power. Uh, when we see uh, Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, his kingdom is coming uh, and we see his power. And so maybe that's just the basic uh, background, but then we can kind of get into the actual account itself. That that's a very important verse to look at, and I think you're right that it's very natural to hear Jesus say, "Some standing here," so it implies not all of them. Meaning, well, we're going to see three of his disciples here, so some standing here won't die until they see the kingdom of God. I think this event does stand as a natural conclusion that, at least in part, Jesus is referring to this event. And we we looked at that previously that there are some other things, including Jesus' own death and resurrection, that we might tie nine verse one to, but I think the transfiguration is very natural. The other the other thing that we shouldn't forget, I think, is that Mark has made a, a pretty big transition here in his gospel account. We've heard Jesus for the very first time predict his own suffering, death, and resurrection in very plain language. And that's a, a pretty big deal. The disciples don't get it yet. And so that that turning point is is so important to keep in mind as we go forward. And you know, as you said, we've recently talked about the transfiguration. We've celebrated that in worship. And it's always so so hard for me to just preach on the particular text of the transfiguration because you really need to know what Jesus has just said and done to really get the full appreciation for what Jesus is doing at his transfiguration, which I think we'll get to do today. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is definitely one of those things that when you understand it in that context, uh, it, it really provides an added contrast to what is going on, right? I mean, that uh, in one way, this is so different uh, to the eyes from what Jesus says is about to occur. And yet at the same time, what's really going on on the Mount of Transfiguration is all about what he has just said. Right. Yeah, we, we need to keep that in mind. So with that, let's take a look at the text. We are in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. 
and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how, and how is it written that the Son of Man, excuse me, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. That's the text for today, Mark 9, verses 2 through 13. Pastor Hoppy, Mark sets the stage for us. He says this took place after six days. So six days after the previous conversation that he's had with them? Yeah, I think so. Uh, we uh, This is one of those things too, you know, uh, like a lot of the accounts that we get in Matthew and Mark and Luke, where we get the, you know, same account, um, you know, we can have these things that are, are slightly different and not different in the sense of they contradict one another, but different in the sense of what each person has kind of drawn attention to. Uh, so for instance, Luke uses, you know, after eight days, and many people think that's sort of just a, an idiom of speaking about a week. Um, but we have here in Mark this after six days. Uh, but again, in Luke's uh, gospel, we're told after these sayings, and it seems to me at least from what we have, that that's likely the reference about six days, right? Uh, or maybe Mark's being even a little more precise than Luke uh, in this way that uh, Luke speaks by way of idiom, but Mark uh, specifically. But, you know, either way, I guess we can say about a week after he has said these things and particularly said that one thing about some of those people not tasting death until they saw the kingdom of God coming in power. Yeah, it's, it, what's interesting about it is that it's such a specific time reference in, in the Gospels where you don't always get very specific time references as to how many days went past or how many months. But here it's after six days, which you know, is there significance to the that number of days? I don't know that I would go that far, other than perhaps just highlighting the fact that you get the time that says, hey, pay attention to this. And, and as you said, you know, six days in Matthew and Mark and eight in Luke, I think is pretty easily explained in terms of, you know, you can count inclusively or exclusively if you count the days on the end or you don't count the days on the end, you know, you don't have to see a, there's not a contradiction there in other words. So six days were again that, and that also helps draw in that previous context of what Jesus has been talking about, about some of them witnessing something, and also then what he's told them about his own death and resurrection being necessary. Now he takes with the, with him Peter, James, and John. This is Jesus' inner circle, we would sometimes call it. Tell us a little about these three men. Well, yeah, I always find this a little bit interesting. And again, you know, researching it for uh, preaching on it recently and then uh, being your guest today, you know, it, it, we don't really have, you know, anywhere in the scripture uh, that tells us exactly why these three. Um, and yet we do see these three, not only here, uh, but also in a couple other, you know, critical places, the raising of Jairus's daughter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but these three are chosen, uh, like you said, sort of as this inner circle uh, and get to go to certain things that the others uh, don't. Um, and so, but when you think about who these three are, you know, it's pretty amazing uh, who is standing there, right? You have Peter, uh, who of course is sort of that uh, first among equals uh, in one way, and of course, upon whose confession uh, Jesus says he's going to build his church. Uh, and so we have Peter there, and of course, all the other things Peter did, right? Uh, preaching at Pentecost and taking the word of God uh, all over uh, the inhabited world at that day. He is there, right? And then you have James, uh, who is the uh, first martyr among the apostles, uh, and the, the martyr that we are told of in the scriptures, right? Many of the other martyring of the apostles we know from early church history, but James is 
being martyred is told to us in the book of Acts. So he is there. And then we get John, who of course remains as that last living apostle uh, who lived unto old age, unlike uh, all the others, uh, as that kind of living testimony to Christ's uh, word and his works. Uh, and so while they will find out quickly, they don't see themselves as certainly, uh, you know, great ones on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, but we do, right? As we look back, we think, wow, right? Look at these guys that were there. And again, uh, Jesus preparing them for the work uh, that was before them. And also possibly, we can talk about this later, preparing them uh, for Holy Week that was soon before them. So Jesus has these three, and again, that connection with the very previous verse, some of them, here's that group. You've got a some of them who heard those words from 9 chapter 1. They go up a high mountain, so, and that's something we really shouldn't pass by too quickly either. Tell us about this high mountain. Yeah, so uh, this is one of those things where, you know, we're not given an actual location. And so, um, you know, scholars uh, ever since, and also people that uh, want to rake in tourist dollars, right, make their case for which mountain uh, it is, uh, whether uh, the two most likely are Mount Hermon and Mount Tabor. But of course, we can say that all over the scriptures, uh, going up on a mountain is sort of uh, a time when we're to really, uh, you know, listen closely, right? Important things happen on mountains. Of course, uh, the giving uh, of the Ten Commandments, and then ultimately Christ, uh, while not a mountain, you know, there's still that imagery there of Mount Calvary, right? Not Maybe not as big of a mountain as uh, others, uh, but again, when we hear in the Bible that we're going up on a mountain, and again, there's a lot more examples than that, uh, we kind of know that this is going to be a significant event, uh, and indeed it is. Yeah, the anytime you see God taking people up a mountain in the scriptures, you should be paying attention. Your ears should perk up that the Lord is going to do something. And, and the connection that you made to, again, what we call Mount Calvary, although probably not much of a mountain, I think is a really important one. And maybe we can do that a little bit. As you said, this is going to prepare us, prepare the disciples and us to get to Holy Week. I think there's a good reason that this text appears liturgically where it does before that season of Lent functioning very similarly to the way it did for these three men as well. Yeah. And, and in terms of mountains in the scriptures, there's all kinds of events we could talk about. I think we might get to a couple in particular when we see who shows up with Jesus in his transfiguration. You mentioned already Mount Sinai, and I think that's a pretty important point when it comes to the two men who appear with Jesus on this high mountain, whichever one it is. The point is, pay attention. God's about to reveal himself to his people in some way. So how he does that here, it begins with this just spectacular image, the spectacular thing that happens. The text says he was transfigured before them. So take us into this, the actual main event of what happens to Jesus. Yeah. Um, you know, as I was looking at this, and particularly as you look at it in the different Gospels, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they all use a slightly different, um, you know, way to describe what happens. And why is that? Well, I think it's precisely because they're describing the indescribable, right? There's yeah. uh, something going on here that no one had ever seen before. Uh, and so they try to describe uh, how Jesus looks. Um, one of the church fathers actually just says, you know, he was as bright as the sun, as white as the snow, right? But he all of a sudden, his his whole appearance uh, changes, and particularly we're told here in Mark, right, about his clothes, uh, his clothes becoming radiant, intensely white, uh, so that as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, and so, you know, this this occurs, and what we see here then ultimately, this idea of a bright white light, right, is used throughout the scriptures as sort of a way to point us to the fact that God is present. Um, you know, when we talk about the glory of God in the Bible, um, you know, people often will say, well, how do you define that? And it's interesting, the Bible, you know, it seems like the, the way that's spoken of most often is in terms of this glorious light, right, that kind of surrounds God or emanates from God, perhaps is a better way to put it. Uh, but this is what we see here 
uh, with Jesus. He, he, this change is made uh, and he's transformed into something that obviously uh, the disciples notice uh, right away and are, uh, you know, terrified of in one way uh, because uh, of its, its unusual nature. And if they understand it at all, uh, the fact that, you know, God's glory is being revealed, there's another good reason to be terrified if you're a sinner. Yeah, the the event here of Jesus being transfigured in this brilliantly white light, I, I think you're exactly right that it's the different gospel writers describe it in different ways because there's really no good way to describe it. And, and I, I, I talked about this in my sermon on the transfiguration recently, that on the one hand, this is one of those texts where I think the picture is pretty evident. You know, we should be imagining in our minds the most brilliantly white, bright light that we can. And yet on the other hand, to try to describe that or even picture it in the same sense that Peter, James, and John saw it is practically impossible. Tell me what you think of this, Pastor Hop, because this is how I, the best image that I could think of, of maybe something that gets us close is if, imagine you're in a really deep sleep, just a the deepest slumber you can imagine. And suddenly you're awakened by your kid who shines a flashlight directly into your eyes. Maybe something like that of, of just total darkness into this blinding sense of light. That's the best that I could do in terms of an experience that I might have that could be even you know minorly comparable. Yeah, no, I think that's a good uh, example of what what this might have kind of felt like for them. Uh, you know, the other biblical story, right, might be uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, right, and this yeah. bright light there, right, that is again Jesus, of course, um, but you know, blinds him uh, immediately, right? And we've all had those occurrences where we do see so bright a light that for a moment we we can't see at all, and and that's exactly what's going on here. The the other picture that could be of Jesus' transfiguration comes from the Apostle John. Now, as you've said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels that have that same seeing, they generally follow the same order of events and often use the same language. They all record the transfiguration, but the Gospel according to St. John does not. However, in the book of Revelation, in the which is a revelation that was given to St. John, he records in his first chapter when Jesus appears to him, and it sounds an awful lot like what you might have expected from the transfiguration. So I'm just going to read this because I think this could be another, again, potentially, there, there's maybe some disagreement among among biblical readers as to whether or not John might be describing even the transfiguration here. But I think that it gives us another image to put in our minds. So this is Revelation 1, oh, beginning of verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And and John continues for purposes that, that fit more with the book of Revelation. But that, again, could be another image that we could get in our mind, perhaps of what's going on here with the transfiguration. Now, to try to draw us back more into what Mark gives us, Mark particularly emphasizes Jesus' clothes as he records the transfiguration for us. Anything that we should pay attention to because of the nature of Jesus' clothes, Pastor Hoppy? Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we look at this idea of a white robe, right? And it's kind of, again, one of these images that comes up time and time again, uh, in the scriptures. And uh, when we hear that, right, not only are we to think of Christ and his purity upon himself, uh, but we are also to think about Christ's purity being placed upon us or his righteousness that we get to wear. And so uh, some of the early church fathers, you know, tell us that when we see this, we should remember too that one day we will get to wear uh, these righteous robes that are just as bright as Jesus's. Of course, in one way, we already wear them uh, as baptized children of God, but manifestly we'll see them 
uh, on the last day. And I think all of this, uh, you know, we can return to this, but the transfiguration, of course, does serve as sort of a preview of something that is going to come later, right? Ultimately, that's going to come on the last day. Um, And, uh, you know, as we look then, like we said, at going into Holy Week, it kind of gives us this reminder that Jesus's journey is not just about suffering, though it is about suffering a lot, right? But it is suffering that ultimately leads to glory, right? Christ is humiliated and then he's exalted. And so uh, we always want to remember too that as we suffer for Christ, right, it's not just for the sake of suffering, but that eventually it will lead to glory and we will get to wear robes uh, much like the one that we see Christ here uh, decked out in. Yeah, so a foreshadow of what is to come for Christ and also for what is to come for those who are in Christ. I think the collect for the transfiguration of our Lord picks up on that, that we would be heirs with Christ in his glory. I don't have the exact language in front of me, but that that collect for the transfiguration of our Lord really sums up some of those, those thoughts very well. So here is Jesus shining brightly, his clothes more brilliantly white than you or I can really even imagine. We've got some thoughts as to what we might put in our heads, but it's it's even brighter than that. And then Peter, James, and John see Elijah with Moses, who are talking with Jesus. And again, I mean, we know a lot about these two men from the scriptures, but in, in another sense, there's, there's a little bit of mystery here too. You don't really get a, a full explanation about why these two men, but again, from what we know from the scriptures, I think we can at least have some some ideas. So help us into why why these two men what could this be teaching us? Right. And really, when you look back kind of over, you know, what Christians have taught about this forever, there's all sorts of things really that pop out that sort of, you know, bring these two men together and why they might uh, be here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe uh, one of the first things, or at least maybe one of the more interesting kind of ideas is that they both end up with what I'll call odd deaths, right? Now, Moses, uh, his odd death, he does die, but then we're told, right, he's buried by God, uh, quite a unusual occurrence, right? And then Elijah, of course, uh, we're told, right, is taken up in the whirlwind with the chariots of fire to heaven and seemingly doesn't die at all. And so you have uh, these two uh, men who had very uh, odd or unusual deaths uh, there present. Now, does that speak to why they're there? Well, perhaps, but, you know, I think we'd be pushing it if we say that that's, you know, the main reason maybe they are there. I mean, they even have similar biographies and to some extent, right? They both uh, stand up against tyrants, right? Uh, Pharaoh for Moses and Ahab for Elijah, uh, and just many other things in their biographies that we could say are are similar, um, but I think that maybe the two main things we want to focus on is one, they stand here as representative of the law and the prophets, right? Moses uh, being the one who receives the law uh, from God, and then Elijah being the one uh, that is really uh, spoken of sort of as this great prophet during the time, particularly of the kings. Um, and, you know, all that he does, all that God allows him to do, it, it sort of gives us this picture of the law and the prophets, which, of course, Jesus often uses as shorthand sort of for the whole Old Testament, for all the words of God that came forward before he was there. And, of course, he says the law and the prophets testify about me, about Jesus. And so uh, I think we see that here, that they they are representative of that and therefore show us that Christ is the fulfillment of all of that, right? He is the one who brings about the new covenant in place of the first covenant given to Moses. And he is the one that fulfills every prophecy, right? Uh, All the words of God are made yes in him, Paul says at one place, right? Uh, So he is the fulfillment of every prophecy that's ever uh, been spoken. So they're, they're this representative uh, of those two things. And uh, again, we want to say that 
they are listening to Jesus, right? Uh, I, I said to someone, you know, if if you got uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah together and just considered them according to the flesh, right, just as men, you would think that Jesus would be asking Moses, you know, what, what was it like at the Red Sea, right? What was it like on Mount Sinai? Or Elijah, what was it like on Mount Carmel uh, when all the prophets of Baal were embarrassed? Uh, but but Jesus isn't asking them questions, isn't talking to them. Uh, the other Gospels make clear that what they're talking about is not what Moses and Elijah had done, but what Jesus is about to do. Uh, and so they're representatives and yet shown to be lesser than Jesus, who is there on the mount with them. I, I think that is a, such an important point, that these two men are there talking with Jesus, they're listening to him, which I, I think brings in a, a little more Old Testament background on those two men. We've been talking about mountains a little bit. Well, these two men both stand out in the Old Testament for those who talked to God on a mountain. Moses talked to God, and particularly Mount Sinai. Moses talked to God on Mount Sinai, both at the burning bush and then later in receiving the law. And Elijah talked to God on Mount Sinai right after Jezebel's trying to kill him and he flees for his life and the Lord strengthens him there in that low whisper on Mount Sinai. And so you, you've got in the Old Testament, these two men are known for talking to God on a mountain and here they show up in the New Testament and they're talking to someone on a mountain. And I think the conclusion we should draw from that is, well, they're talking to God. They're, they're listening to God just as they were in the Old Testament. So they are now in the new and, and that God, well, it's Jesus the one who's come in our flesh to be our savior. And and there's more to look at there, Pastor Hoppy, but we will pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 22nd. We're looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. We have Pastor Phil Hoppy with us. He serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppy, prior to the break, we were talking about Moses and Elijah and the various things that the presence of these two men on the mountain might mean. We were talking about how they're representative of the law and the prophets. Both of these men talk to God on a mountain, particularly Mount Sinai. And here they're talking to Jesus, who is also God on another mountain. Uh, what else? You, you mentioned there was another thing that we might gain from seeing these two men on the mountain with Jesus. Yeah, well, we often, again, might hear that they are representative of the law and prophets. And I think that is certainly true. Uh, the thing that kind of, one of the things that stuck out to me that this time is that they both are prophets also, right? We don't uh, often think of Moses in exactly those terms, I think, just because of everything uh, he's involved with that I, I don't know if we would put that term with him right away. It's like when someone says it, well, yeah, of course he is, right? Uh, he's a mouthpiece of God. Uh, but we get two particular Old Testament promises that basically tell us what's going to happen at the time that the Messiah comes, and it's related to two prophets, right? The first being Moses, and in Deuteronomy 18, 15, we're told, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him that you should listen. And so uh, here we're told, uh, this is, you know, speaking of Moses here, and he says that uh, when the Messiah comes, he is going to be a prophet like Moses. And then we get some other interesting details here, right? He's going to come from among your brothers. So we get here the humanity of Christ uh, really highlighted. And then, of course, you know, how amazing this word back in Deuteronomy, it is to him that you shall listen, right? And then we'll be 
be told here in this account of the transfiguration, listen to Jesus, right? That is kind of the the key thing uh, other than identifying who Jesus is. If there's a, a command related to that, it's this listen to him. And I think, you know, again, God there is drawing these two things together. He is saying in that word of listen to him, that this is the prophet like Moses spoken of uh, that would come as the Messiah. The other passage we get is from Malachi uh, chapter 4, 5, and 6, where we're told, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the other thing we know that people were waiting for in regards to the Messiah was this return of Elijah. Um, You know, and again, we mentioned Elijah leaves in a rather uh, unique way. And so how everyone understood this is, is somewhat, you know, something we don't know exactly whether they were anticipating literally Elijah to come. Uh, But Jesus will make clear, right, know that it's one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. uh, And we'll return to that part uh, later in our text. Uh, So maybe we'll leave that for now. But isn't it interesting that you get these two prophecies about the Messiah as well that are centered in on Moses and Elijah, and they're the two that are there as well? Yeah, I think those two texts are very important to understanding this event. It's interesting, We, in the series we did in the season of Advent last December, we looked at Old Testament texts for the season of Advent, and both of those texts, Deuteronomy 18 and Malachi 4, show up there pointing forward to the coming of Christ. Here you have the two men evoked by those texts on the mountain with Jesus, and I, I think you're right to bring them to bear as we consider what this means. Now, our dear friend Peter, he just loves to talk. And he is no ex- no exception here on the mountain. He says very memorable words. In fact, they show up in one of our hymns for the Day of Transfiguration. Uh, take us into what, what Peter says, what he might be getting at, and ultimately how he, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Right. Yeah, we have uh, some glorious hymns for transfiguration, but at least in my growing up, right, uh, it, it was the "Tis Good Lord to Be Here" that sort of, uh, you know, is is the one that that I link most. Even though some of the other ones, like I said, are, are glorious uh, texts as well. Uh, but this is kind of the idea. Peter here, like you said, he always likes to speak, um, but we're also told, particularly, he's he's terrified and likely confused when he says this. Uh, but again, throughout uh, you know Christian commentary, uh, it seems that the point is mostly that Peter wants to remain there, which we can kind of see, right? If you're there with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, uh, there might be that sense of, hey, yeah, this is about as good as it gets. Let's stay here. Um, we also get uh, perhaps a reference here to uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was Uh, you know, this feast that the Israelites um, celebrated where they would actually go and live in tabernacles in tents, uh, much like their forefathers had done uh, throughout the time of the wilderness wandering and really, you know, until uh, they get settled in the promised land. Um, So, you know, we we don't know exactly what all is going on here, but Peter, as always, I think is trying, right? He's, He's trying to say something that is meaningful or good. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, perhaps he should have just been silent, right? Um, uh, and we get clear here from Jesus that they're not going to stay there forever. Um, and that's where we always get that last verse in that uh, hymn I mentioned, right? Where uh, we say, you know, but since you bid us leave the mount, come with us to the plain, right? And, uh, and you know, when we, we sing that, we're realizing that we don't have this mountaintop glorious life always, right? Uh, Things are not always uh, shiny and bright and white to our eyes, right? But what we know is that we have a Lord who suffers and therefore is with us in every suffering. And so he does. He comes with us to the plain and maybe we could even say to the valley, right? Uh, he, He does all of that for us. Yeah, and I think in, in that way, at least that last phrase of that last stanza in that hymn really does connect with at least some of the things we've been setting up, and I know we're going to talk about still, of how this event does prepare us for Holy Week, to to prepare us to know as we go 
and we see those events of our Lord as he suffers in great agony, as he dies in great shame, that we know that he's doing that as the one who is God, that the God who, who we see revealed in all of his glory here in the person of Jesus Christ, well, he's still that same guy when he goes to the cross. And so that the one who dies on the cross for you is the one who is, is glorious and all powerful and the one who is, is in fact your savior. I, I think to, I'm just, I'm just doing it right now rather than waiting, I guess, you know, I mean, to tie those two events together, I think are, are so important so that we would know that, that when we're witnessing all the events of Holy Week and Good Friday, that although they might initially lead us to some kind of despair, and in fact, they should bring us joy and hope because we know where those events lead. Ultimately, they lead to our Lord's resurrection and our salvation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're exactly right that uh, this whole thing kind of is set up perfectly. As you mentioned, you know, we liturgically place this very close uh, to Lent, right? And that's because uh, just in the history of what happened, this event uh, is very close to Holy Week, right? It's leading up to that. And so, yeah, it, it does put everything together and the disciples uh, although we know they didn't fully understand it, they must have marveled some, right? As they see Jesus so humiliated and have in their mind this picture of the transfiguration. Um, I mean, it, it must have just baffled them in one sense, especially if it's true what we sort of suspect that, you know, they had this general idea that the Messiah would come and rule kind of in an earthly way. Uh, add that now to the, you know, having the, the vision of the transfiguration, and then you watch the Lord suffer. And, you know, it had to just cause them kind of, you know, all sorts of emotions and inner turmoil to try to figure this out. And only after, right, the suffering and then the resurrection, the ascension and the sending of the spirit, does it all finally click that, as you said, the glorious one is the one who was crucified for us. And what a, you know, marvelous and comforting thought that is. And I think, you know, I think John really puts those things together for us in the vision that he has in the book of Revelation, where he sees the lamb who was slain be the one to take the throne of God, to to ascend the throne of God. It's the lamb who was slain. Or how Jesus, and, and this also is in the gospel according to St. John, how it is the scars that Jesus shows them. That's how they recognize who he is. And I think it's in the book of Revelation too. Where, where Jesus, you know, he still bears the scars. And in fact, those scars are his glory. It's like John there puts those two things together for us, that, that in eternity, the suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus, they simply go together. And, and maybe that's, you know, that's what's missing at this moment in Mark chapter nine is that Jesus is glorious. He's shining like that, but he doesn't have the scars yet. And so he's, he still has to go down the valley into the plain to the, the valley of the shadow of death to earn those scars to win our salvation. And then those two, those two beautiful realities go together for all eternity. Yeah, and realize that that kind of image, right, of how those two come together, it really goes all the way back to the first promise in the garden, yeah. right? This one who is both going to be wounded and yet be the victor at the same time, Genesis 3.15, right? He's going to have uh, his heel bruised, but he will bruise or crush the head of Satan, right? So all the way back to the beginning, it's there that these two things, that victory and suffering are together, uh, but, you know, it, it's hard to get that. It's still hard for us to get that in our life, right? We, we often do not view our suffering as accomplishing anything good or being victorious either, but in Christ, uh, it is so. So Peter does not know this on the mountain. He he speaks out, probably well-intentioned, but yet not fully grasping it, that to stay here is not the point. And so the Lord will show Peter and the others who are there the truth. And the scene, I mean, again, the, the dramatic nature of it here, a cloud comes down. So start right there, Pastor Hoppy. Yeah. So, I mean, the clouds throughout the Bible, again, if we talked about mountains before is these kind of important moments, uh, you know, clouds are most often this sign that God has come 
uh, into the building, literally, right? right. Uh, whether it be tabernacle or temple, right? Uh, or even, you know, again, some of the other ways he manifested his presence uh, in the past. But this cloud shows up and it's the sign here now that not only is Jesus the glorious one there, but now we see here the other person of the Trinity, uh, the Father coming uh, and being present as well. And is going to now redirect their attention, I think, here from the glory they're seeing to the words that Jesus has been speaking to them. Namely, that he is about to go and be handed over uh, and crucified and then, yes, raised from the dead. But he, this, this word that he speaks uh, directs them to that instead of just staying up on the mountain in glory. Right. So listen to him. That's the that's the key. Well, to I mean, so not to pass by the other words that quickly. This is my beloved son. We heard those words at Jesus' baptism. He adds, "Listen to him." Here, take us into both of those statements. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, you know, we could say Moses and Elijah, and, and later Peter, James, and John are rightly called sons of God, right? Plural. Uh, but only one can be called the beloved son of God. And so this speaks of his unique nature uh, from all eternity, but it also speaks here again, uh, identifying him as the Messiah, this one whom God has sent forth to save the world. Uh, then again, it, the the basic point in line with that, um, that prophecy about the prophet of Moses is we are told to listen to Jesus. And as we start off talking about, this comes shortly after Jesus has uh, made his first uh, um, attempt at speaking plainly to the disciples to reveal to them what is about to happen. And he'll do that uh, more so. But I think it's particularly those words that the disciples are to listen to, that they wouldn't think, oh, glory, 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 right? But they would hear, no, this is what Jesus says we are going to go about. He is going to take up his cross now. Um, and so I think that's what they're to listen to. I mean, obviously, more generally, listen to everything he says, of course. Uh, but in this particular context, listen to Jesus. He's telling you what is about to happen. I think you're exactly right that, again, we should listen to Jesus. That is a, a, that's good advice for Christians, no matter what he's talking about, to listen to Jesus. But specifically here, to listen to him concerning what he has just said about his own suffering, death, and resurrection. Remember that his disciples, upon hearing that, although they had rightly confessed him to be the Christ, they rebuke him, at least Peter does publicly, and, and the others apparently needed to hear it as well, that they didn't realize that Jesus was going to suffer, die, and rise. In fact, they said, no, that's not going to happen. So what do they need to listen to? They need to listen to that. And in seeing him do that, and in hearing him say that reality, they should know that that actually identifies him as the Son of God, which it's probably worth reminding again that we're kind of in a a transitional part of the Gospel of Mark. And and remember, Mark bookends his Gospel with this confession that Jesus is the Son of God. We heard it in the very first verse, and we don't hear it from any human lips until you get to chapter 15 after Jesus' crucifixion, where the centurion confesses Jesus to be the Son of God. And now here we're kind of in the middle, and you get it from the voice of God himself saying, yes, Jesus is my Son. And how do you know that? Well, listen to what he said. You know he's the son of God because he's the one who's going to suffer, die, and rise. So I think to connect that very specifically in this context is is precisely what what's being done here. And then the scene just wraps up really quickly. Peter, James, and John, they look up and no one's there. They only see Jesus. Yeah. And again, it's sort of a, a, you know, we always talk in our modern world about people having different uh, uh, ways of learning, right? So if you're not uh, listening uh, to what was said, you get this visual picture at the end, right? Who's there? Just Jesus, right? So who are you going to listen to? Well, at that point, you've only got one choice, you know, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the only one standing here, right? Um, and, you know, we get this wonderful picture there visually of what has been revealed throughout this whole account. Yeah. And, and again, n now they see Jesus only. And I would say, presumably, I mean, Moses and Elijah have definitely left. The, the cloud's gone. The Father's voice isn't heard. And so I would 
but presumably he's not shining brightly anymore. They're seeing Jesus as they've always seen him other than for that one shining moment. And yet the reality that they saw on the mountain remains. He is the son of God, even when you see him just like this, which I think you know, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that this prepares us for what's going to come in Holy Week. That when you look at this Jesus, this quote, regular Jesus, that's the glorious one who's come to win your salvation. Don't forget that. And, and it gets cemented here, not only audibly listen to him, but also visually they saw no one but Jesus only. Other Before we leave the transfiguration behind for sort of the aftermath that comes, any other overall thoughts on the transfiguration and what we should gather from it? Yeah, I think we've kind of covered them as we've went through, but just obviously that Jesus, again, is identified uh, as the Christ. Uh, you know, his glory as the only begotten son is is revealed. Uh, and, you know, then again, this kind of idea that then it prepares uh, everyone, especially the disciples, for what is about to happen. And just like you said there at the end, particularly that as they look at his humiliated uh, flesh coming up, right, uh, that this is going to be very important for them uh, to remember, if not at the moment, which it doesn't seem like they do, right, because uh, they're not necessarily sustained by this. But as they reflect back after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, they'll kind of put this all together, and this will serve uh, to aid their faith in that moment. So Jesus then brings them down the mountain. As they're taking that trip down the mountain, he tells them, don't tell anyone what they've seen, which, especially in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus repeat a command like that many times to various groups of people, don't say anyone. Here he gives the specific reminder, don't say anyone anything to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And we've talked a little bit about this, Pastor Hoppy, but particularly in this context, why this? Why don't say anything until he's been raised? Right. I think that Jesus here makes clear throughout his life that he wants the chief sign of his life ultimately to be his death and resurrection. And if if we need to divide up those two, ultimately the resurrection. I mean, obviously the death is is central. Uh, but you know, in uh, especially Matthew's gospel, we get all of this where the people are asking for a sign, and he says, "The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, right? Who was uh, in the belly of the whale uh, for three days, right, and three nights, and then and then was uh, spit out, right? Uh, and he says, right, that's the only sign I'm going to give you. And now, obviously, he doesn't really mean there the sign of Jonah uh, itself, but what that points to, which is his resurrection. And so he tells no one to speak about this because he needs to, uh, in his uh, controlling of the timing of all of this, which is just magnificent to to really think about. But when he, you know, when he is controlling all of this, he's preserving what has to happen to fulfill all the prophecies. But then ultimately he wants that resurrection to sort of be the chief sign. And really, uh, you know, if you look at it again, even in the New Testament, uh, the account of the transfiguration itself does not play a huge role, even though it's this magnificent event. Uh, but are they going to talk about the resurrection of Christ? You bet, right? And so that has to happen to be the chief sign. And then all these other signs can kind of fill in the gaps, is at least how I read the text. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's helpful. Again, we see Jesus controlling how he is known and what he wants to be known for, and particularly in Mark, that he would be seen as the Son of God, by the centurion, when he's crucified, that opens the eyes there. Now, the disciples here get the chance to ask Jesus a question. We see this previously where they're in private. Here it's just the three of them, and they ask particularly, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Which I think it goes back to that Malachi chapter 4 passage you brought up earlier, Pastor Hoppy. What's the question being asked? How does Jesus answer it? Yeah, it's it's really a really interesting thing when you realize that Elijah was just there. And yet their question seems rather unrelated to that, right? They're, they're not asking, was that it? Was that Elijah coming back? And maybe it's because he was only there for a moment, right? But they're really asking this question. They they kind of get it for a moment that 
he is saying that he is the Messiah. But they say, hold on now. Uh, we know we, we're good students of the Jewish law, the Jewish prophecy. We know that Elijah has to come before the Messiah. So if you're saying you're the Messiah, who was Elijah? Well, I think the problem is here that just like they're going to misunderstand uh, Jesus's work initially, they also misunderstood Elijah's work in John the Baptist. And what I mean by that is, again, when uh, Elijah was spoken of coming and restoring all things, I think they thought that this Elijah figure also would be one who would show very visibly in an earthly way that he was restoring all things, and then the Messiah would come. And yet, no, what did he do? He preached, right? He baptized, but then he suffered, uh, right? Even, uh, you know, dying uh, for standing firm to God's uh, word and the things that he had revealed. Uh, and so I think they misunderstand both. They don't think John the Baptist can be Elijah because he didn't restore things in a very visible, manifest, earthly way. And Jesus has to say, hey, no, he was here. He was John the Baptist, and he did all things, and then people did whatever they wanted to him. And I think, again, Jesus is preparing them to say, if I'm telling you that with Elijah, it was not this glorious, powerful manifestation of an earthly kingdom, be prepared, because it's not going to be so with me either. And then we could even add to it, it's not going to be so with you either afterwards, right? Uh, pick up your cross and follow. Yeah, that that really ties together everything that Jesus had just said previously. And you go back to the Father's voice, listen to him. We specifically pointed to what would happen to Jesus in his own suffering, death, and resurrection. But in that intervening part, before you get to the transfiguration, he does take the moment to take to teach them about their own life of discipleship, that they will take up their cross. And this this journey that John has taken and that Jesus has taken will be the journey that they will take, that will take them into death and suffering for the sake of the gospel. But then the, the wonder of the transfiguration is that they will also receive that same glory that belongs to Christ because they belong to him. Pastor Rob, we've got about two minutes here on the morning. Help us sum things up, uh, preach the good news to us from the transfiguration of our Lord. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we look at this, right? And again, as you said, we get this wonderful visual that reveals to us exactly who Jesus is, that he is God. And then we might ask, right, what is God here to do? Well, he's already spoken it. And so we're told to listen to him, right? So that he will tell us what he has come to do. But now as we go forward from this point in the gospel of Mark, we're really going to see him do what he came to do. And in that, we find all of our comfort and joy, right? That God himself, though we destroyed his world, uh, would not simply cast us away, but would enter into the world in order to save us uh, and ultimately bring us to live in a new heavens and a new earth with him forever. And this is sort of a, you know, chief moment in all of that story to kind of force us towards those overall points and find joy in it. Pastor Phil Hoppe is the pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to be with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have a question about Mark chapter 9 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.